Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Nick Underwood. On today's episode, we throw guest host Nick into the shallow end of the pool and hand him the off top. He's talking about complex system science, a lesser-known field of study that just might be able to explain everything in the universe and got both of us viewing the world through a lens of determinism. Then, I'm discussing an FX television series that mines the real-world horror that any American will be intimately familiar with to craft ten seasons of ever-changing narrative. I'm talking about American Horror Story. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Nick. Brett. Josh. <laughs> nice. You have been listening to this show. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, man. Good to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Just kind of a a long week of just getting things done. Not a whole lot of fun this week other mm. than playing with the kids, which is always fun. But yeah. I don't have anything amazing to report. How about you? Well, uh, it's actually been a pretty busy week for us. Uh, we were in Telluride and then we left. But while we were there, uh, we went over to visit Brett at Camp V. And oh, man. Yep, hung out with Brett and uh, Bree for a little bit. Um, not too long. It would have been cool if we could have stayed longer, but they gave us a full tour of the camp, which is a really neat place. A lot of cool stuff going on there. Um, got to film Brett on his one wheel ri- while riding on the back of a golf cart they lovingly call Golfy. I saw um, that video. It was awesome. He was really tearing that pavement in a new wheel hole. Right, right. It looked really fun. Um, I thought about giving it a shot, but I didn't think it was probably the time to do it. Uh it is still on the bucket list. But after leaving Telluride, we came back through Montrose, which is actually Brett's home airport. Uh, you know, he's a pilot and all. And they happen to have a really cool river park um, in the middle of the city. So it's a pretty nice town all in all. But this park, they built six uh, man-made surf waves in the river that cuts through the town. Whoa. And I gave that a shot yesterday. Something I always want to do. I've done a lot of uh, ocean surfing. Uh, if you want to call it that, I'm not good by any means, but I love being out there, but I've seen the river surf before and I've always wanted to try it. And we made a point to stop in and give it a go. Conditions apparently weren't great. The water was a little low. Um, but man, I love flailing around out in the water, no matter what it is. And, uh, you get a wetsuit, you rent a little board and you try, I tried, uh, I think four of the different waves cause they each have their own different shape. And I eventually was able to stay in the wave, which is a little tricky, but I was never able to stand up. There was a an older lady there actually shredding on a stand-up paddleboard. Um, oh, was trying man, to give me some... so massive. Uh, yeah, so I we saw it um, the week before, and a guy like on a full stand-up paddleboard was doing it. She had sort of like a stubby, I don't know, like half-size one. Like, I don't know how she bounced on it. Like, I don't think I could do it. Um, but she was really good. And there was also like this... No, uh, she couldn't have been more than like 10. This girl out there by herself on a boogie board and she would just hop in and ride the wave for a while and then get washed like halfway down the river and then swim away back up. It was really cool. What to happens see that. when you get washed out? Do you just have to paddle to the side and then hike it back to the wave park? No, it's actually incredible. I wish real surfing was like this. Um, the way it's built, um, the water runs through like the little wave they built and there's like a center channel, but there's an eddy on both sides. 
And if you just get out of that center channel, the eddy brings you back around. You could pop back on your board and get taken right back into the wave. So it's like a whoa full-on circle. Yeah. That is awesome. So I'm guessing like under the surface and they must have built some sort of like concrete features that shape the wave or something like that. I will tell you that it does definitely felt like concrete. Um, yeah. Oh, you it, hit it. <laughs> yeah. Uh -oh. Some of the, yeah. they. So the lady was telling me um, whatever flow it was at that day. Um, if you double it, that's when it gets good. If you triple it, that's when it's great. And if you, I think add more on top of that, it's fucking awesome. That's what she said. Or it blows your mind. And um, so I was there on a really light day and yeah, definitely hit bottom a couple times, but yeah, it, it, it looked like they, just made a perfectly curved kind of, not a waterfall, just like a drop in the in the uh, level of the river. And it just creates this kind of backwash that flows over itself to create the wave. That totally and makes just, sense. Yeah, you just hang out there in that wave. It's really cool. I want to do a lot I, more of it. I surfed a, for like a year out in California, which was really cool. Like nothing has felt more magical to me than standing on top of water, including skydiving. Yeah. Which uh, I don't know if we ever mentioned that on the show that we like to skydive. I don't think it's ever mm. come up. But uh, standing on water feels, I mean, it just doesn't feel like it's supposed to happen. And so I've only surfed waves that were like maybe two or three feet. But mm -hmm. even that felt amazing. Like it's basically like whitewash surfing is what I did. And then uh, for the last few years, I've been doing uh, wake surfing for, I don't know, it's probably been like, eight years or something we've been going up there every summer to the lake house and that i mean it's kind of the same experience i imagine that'd be a little bit closer to river surfing because it's not as it's by no means as intense as surfing in the ocean and it does feel like with wake surfing to me it feels like it's kind of like a little privatized surf park you know just following the boat around so man river surfing sounds dope that's definitely something i want to try yeah, I actually finally got to try wake surfing too um, this summer. Uh, just got one day out there. I was able to get up and kind of hang out in the pocket. Um, it was new for all of us, even the driver. So we, we were still kind of learning the ropes, how to get the wave set up correctly and everything. I was never able to let go of the rope. Uh, like I couldn't just get right on the lip or right on the edge enough to do that. But that was also something uh, I would, would love to do a ton more of. And we... Uh, yeah, no, I agree. It, it, I'd say that's more similar to the, the river surfing than like real surfing or ocean surfing, I should say. That's cool. What an awesome experience, man. It's what life's all about, collecting those bad boys. Yes, sir. So uh, keeping with our, uh, our theme of having our guest host, Nick, do some sort of integral part of this show, what do you have for the off top this week? Well, what if I told you I could explain everything in the universe in just a few sentences. Whoa, that seems like a braggadocious claim, but I am <laughs> more than happy to let you try. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me try. All right. Is there so, going to be a lot uh, of math in this? Uh, no actual math. It does touch up against that field a little bit, but we don't actually have to dig into that. Well, um, I'm, if you can explain math in a concise and entertaining way, then I am by all means for it. So yeah, let's hear it, man. Yeah. Okay. So I, what I want to share is um, some basics about a lesser known science that has uh, fascinated me for going on, I don't know, say five years now. And has literally changed the way I look at just about everything. Have you heard of the field of complex system science or complexity theory? 
No, not at all. Okay. But that sounds okay. interesting. Uh, what about things like chaos theory, cellular automata, fractals, genetic algorithms, or emergence? I've seen Jurassic Park, so I've heard of chaos theory. I've seen <laughs> fractal generators and the Mandelbrot set. But the rest is all new to me. All right. So all of those uh, more or less fall under the umbrella of uh, complex system science. And to me, uh, this may be the most important science there is for understanding the world around us. Uh, which is a bold statement knowing damn well how much physics has done to explain the universe around us. Um, it's a it's a newer science, uh, relatively speaking. Um, it really got its, its roots are in the 1970s, um, and it's been growing uh, kind of quietly in the shadows ever since. Um, and that's probably why it's not as widely taught or widely known. Uh, either that or I'm like way off and it's not as a big deal as I think it is. <laughs> but... <laughs> It will be a bit of a challenge probably to boil it down in a, you know, a 10, 15 minute off topic segment, but you know, it's, it's well established that to understand something, uh, one of the best ways to do that is to have to teach it. And, uh, even though I've spent a good amount of time in my spare time, uh, kind of researching and studying different aspects, aspects of it, at sort of like a hobbyist level, uh, I've never been really able to describe in like layman terms what it is. Um, so I thought, you know, if I, did it here that would force me to do it and maybe I would you know develop a better understanding myself um, so to dig into it I'll start with a couple basic definitions um, and they give a few examples of complex systems and then um, I will try to describe a, a particular aspect of it that I'm fascinated by uh, that really makes my brain meat sizzle so at a base level um, complex systems are simply systems composed of many components interact, interacting with each other. Um, generally, the component parts are of the same type uh, or a small set of types. Uh, examples would be atoms, uh, molecules, cells, individual ants, or even individual people. Um, and this is a key different, differentiator between complex systems and what might be called a complicated system. So uh, an engine would be a good example of a complicated system. It has a bunch of parts that all work together um, to do something, but each part is unique and plays a specific role. Um, it's the it's the large number of like elements interacting together that uh, makes a system quote unquote complex as compared to complicated. Um, some typical features of complex systems are that they generally self-organize, um, meaning that uh, the interactions between all these components uh, kind of settle into some stable equilibrium. Um, and in many cases, the systems are self-adaptive, adaptive, uh, meaning that they can respond to the environment, quote-unquote, respond to the environment around them, which from a distance often looks like intelligence in a way, um, when really it's just the component parts um, following their basic rules of interaction. That uh, sounds like I, a perfect explanation of how ants operate. That uh, seems ants, like such a, like, a, it just seems like a perfect example of a system like this. Uh, again, sometimes I think you've read some of the things I'm going to talk about. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And ants are actually one of the, um, when you start digging into stuff, ants are used a lot to try to explain the basics of this. Um, uh, cause like you're saying, they really kind of fit in a very simple and trivial way. Um, what a complex system is. Uh, I was actually going to jump into another trivial yet perfect example, uh, of something I'm pretty certain you've heard of. Um, and that's uh, Conway's Game of Life. I'm assuming you've seen uh, that. You... I have. 
talking about no. the board game? <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> oh man, I, I bet I bet you have seen it. Um, there. All right. Uh, if do you know the term? Uh, I know I ask you this, but cellular automata. Um, so not not especially no. All right. Well, so uh, let me see if I can even explain Conway's game of life. So it's a it's a it's, it's like a computer simulation. You have a grid, like I don't know, call it a hundred by hundred grid of squares, and each square and, it, and there's a timeline it, it runs through, and each square has certain rules, and the square is either black or white depending on what its neighbors are like, and there's rules that decide in each time step does it be, does it become black or does it become white based on these rules around its neighbors, and when you run Conway's Game of Life with certain startup scenarios and rules, uh, long-lasting sort of little elements appear uh, that can generate copies of themselves. Um, they can bounce around and move around, and it almost looks like life. And it's just these simple rules and these simple elements that are just squares. Um, and it is a really fascinating kind of uh, way to look at complex systems. Because, again, it's just a bunch of component elements. Um, again, the squares, simple rules, how they interact, and then bigger things come out of that. Um, and what you would generally call those bigger, that the bigger thing that comes out is emergence. So something mm-hmm. emerges out of all these interactions. And that's really the ha- the hallmark of complex systems is the emergence aspect, uh, which is, you know, when something greater appears from the interactions, uh, whether it's a new type of entity or uh, you know, a new type of behavior. Now, um, Another example is uh, when a bunch of molecules interact with each other, uh, you get things like liquids, uh, gases, dirt, diamonds, or even DNA. Uh, When cells interact together, you get things like organs, uh, like the heart and brain. Uh, When ants work together, uh, they form a colony, which in many ways uh, resembles a single organism itself. So you got these. And it appears to have an intelligence as well, but most of like what ants are doing is following following pheromone trails. Which, yep. or, you know, it's like setting up these simple rules, you know, like if you encountered this particular type of food or obstacle, then you lay down a pheromone trail and then certain ants are programmed to follow those trails to perform certain tasks. And it looks like it, it, you know, it looks like someone's controlling them all, like they're individual pieces of the same organism, when in reality, they're all just following those simple, s- simple rules like it's very analog what an ant is doing. Right. No, that, that's exactly right. And again, that's, that's why ants are often used, uh, you know, in the introductory lessons uh, to this kind of stuff. Um, uh, another uh, type of element that interacts uh, at a large scale with it itself are uh, people. And when uh, people interact, we get higher order things like societies, uh, cultures, companies, governments, um, cause none of that had to happen. It's just like a natural way for large groups of interacting humans to categorize and control themselves. You know, it's like, yeah, it's not I, a, it's not a given that there was going to be a community or a government or even a society. Exactly. I mean, it's these things kind of self form, uh, based on, you know, we have a, probably a much larger set of rules. We, we follow to the ways we interact with each other, but, these interactions eventually lead to these larger groups and organizations and kind of emergent properties. Um, if you've heard the term, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, oh, that's yeah. kind of what it's talking about. 
um, you can look at all the people or all the elements of whatever the complex system is and see one thing, but if you look at them individually, you won't see the bigger picture of what emerges out of that. Uh, so I was trying to um, remember how I first got turned on to this field and when it really clicked for me as uh, being such a powerful thing. Uh, I don't remember, of course, uh, because the complex system that is my brain uh, is <laughs> brain not meets. organized. Yeah, it is not organized in a way that allows me to recall such things like that. But that brain uh, needs I do, some pheromone trails to follow. That's right. Just some simple rules, and you never know what'll happen. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do know at some point I came across a place called the Santa Fe Institute. Have you ever heard of that? No, but usually I feel like things with institute in them are slightly ominous. Am I am I uh, far off the base here? Maybe that's just in fiction. Ah. Uh, Ominous is probably not the right word, but it, it's, it's not your typical sort of educational place. It's, it's got its own vibe kind of going. Do you happen to know of a guy named Dr. Ian Malcolm, the chaotician? Of course. I mentioned Jurassic Park earlier. That's right. Uh, in the book, I don't think they mention it in the movie. In the book, he is supposedly from uh, the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, according, to, I'll give you the, basically to describe Santa Fe Institute, I'll just give you the Wikipedia definition. Uh, the Santa Fe Institute is an independent, nonprofit theoretical research institute located in Santa Fe and dedicated to the multidisciplinary study of the fundamental principles of complex adaptive systems, including physical, computational, biological, and social systems. So this place started in the 80s, um, and they are like the powerhouse behind complex systems research. They uh, don't generalize into any particular part of the field. They try to take a holistic approach to it, and they have people from all kinds of fields come in to try to bring the aspects of complex system science into their field. So you have physicists, you have econ uh, economists, you have uh, biologists, uh, just about everything you can think of. Uh, you can apply some of these principles and things that they're learning uh, and the patterns they're picking up from complex systems to just about any field. Um, they have a website that they run called Complexity Explorer. And it's, it's, it's basically an online learning kind of uh, site that has a bunch of different courses, but they have one called Introductory or Introduction to uh, Complexity which I've taken, I think, a couple times now. And I want to say it was the second time around um, that it kind of clicked for me, the power of this. And um, that's when my eyes kind of really opened up. And I was like, holy shit, everything is complex systems. And, I mean, everything in the universe is just layers of complex systems stacked upon each other uh, in this amazing hierarchy of emergence. And once I saw that, all I can see is complex systems now. And like all the crazy stuff that comes out of the world and all these, the complexity of our, just all the wild stuff in our universe, if you boil it down, it's just generally a part of a bunch of similar components interacting together to create something bigger at each level. It's like um, seeing the matrix. What do they, uh, what do they use this to, I'm assuming that like this kind of technology is used for modeling for like predictive, uh, Predictive modeling, correct? Well, I mean, yeah, there's definitely some of that. Um, there are a lot of kind of subfields in it. Um, I mean, like the things I mentioned before, I mean, fractals qualify as a complex system. Um, chaos is a big component of it. Uh, and generally what they're trying to do is, is find some tools to analyze and kind of pull out some patterns in this type of system and see how they can, you know, relate to other complex systems. So if you can understand how an ant colony works, 
and how you know the overall behavior of an ant colony versus the individuals works. Can you apply that to economics? Can you apply that to biology and things like, or just oh, that's other kind of other kind of human things? So they, uh, I mean, there there is some modeling stuff, but that's not all it is. Um, a lot of it's really theoretical. Um, a lot of it's still a lot of it. They're still trying to kind of wrap their heads around. Um, now there's like I said, there's a lot of interesting parts of it. The thing, and I've already alluded to this, that, that fascinates me the most is the the hierarchy of complexity or the, the levels of complex complex systems that make up our universe. Um, so I thought I would try to run to it, uh, run through them um, from the base level of our universe, like the most simple or the, the base complex system, all the way up to basically us podcasting. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. All right. That sounds so, very uh, interesting. Yeah. Let's... Uh, like I said, we'll start at the base level um, and follow a pattern through um, different levels of emerging complexity that are built on top of each other. Uh, we'll take a path through it because um, there are branches. Uh, so where we start, um, and as far as we understand it now, uh, the base level of our universe uh, is what we would call the fundamental, fundamental particles of the standard model of physics. Uh, these are quarks, leptons, and bosons, which are like fancy names for electrons. Uh, photons, uh, uh, neutrinos, things like that. And as these elementary particles interact, we get uh, a variety of things. But one of the things that emerges from that are atoms. So that's sort of our first level emergent property out of this complex system of elementary particles. Atoms come in a variety of flavors, but are more or less the same kind of thing. As they interact, you get molecules. Uh, aside from gas clouds, planets, solar systems, and galaxies, when molecules interact, you get the basic elements of life. Uh, which we can call organelles. Uh, interactions of organelles can lead to the formation of cells. Uh, interacting cells can form to tissues. Interacting tissues can form to organs. Uh, interacting organs organs form organisms. And several things can emerge from the interactions of organisms, uh, biomes, biospheres, ecosystems, and so on. Uh, but now we'll follow a particular branch of organism known as the human being. Uh, when humans interact, uh, we talked about this already a little bit, High-order systems can emerge, such as uh, communities, organizations, religions, cultures, companies, uh, governments, uh, and content, and podcasts about content. And all the way down and all the way up to where we are, everything is really just a result of these simple rules at the level they're on interacting together to create a higher-level uh, emergent system. Uh, and that may not have convinced anybody of the way I laid it out, but... If you spend enough time kind of meditating on it, really thinking about it and digging into a little more in the science, uh, you begin to see that everything really is just simple interactions, simple rules of like elements uh, leading to higher order uh, emergent properties like everything we just described. That's uh, it, man. Thinking about things like that, it's that's the kind of thing that makes me feel like a veil has been pulled back from over my eyes and it really that kind of idea really does seem like seeing the matrix like seeing the code behind the universe and uh, this really reminds me of something that brett talked about on the show uh, during the content piece once the kurtz Kazakt youtube channel mm -hmm. and they have an app that uh he turned me on to i think it's just called the universe but it uh it's basically like what you're talking about but in visual form where as you zoom in, you go smaller and smaller and smaller and you see, you know, all the different 
atoms and subatomic particles. You can go all the way down to a quark, I think. And then uh, as you zoom out, you get to see like this, like these con complex systems arranging themselves into molecules and then into the different organisms on Earth. And then it goes through like the smallest to the largest organism all the way out to the biggest thing we know of, which would be like uh, a galactic supercluster. And uh, it was it's a really good visual representation, I feel like, of exactly what you're talking about. And looking at that app made me feel kind of the same way that what you're just talking about, that road from subatomic particles up to podcasting. You know, it's <laughs> it just made me, it just makes me look at the world around me in a different way whenever I learn things like that. Just kind of like, you know, we don't talk about skydiving much, but you know, like when you start skydiving, you just look at the sky in a completely different way because you realize like, oh, mm -hmm. that's a place that humans can go and a, a place that you can do things. And that that was like a veil pulling back moment. And this kind of awareness also, I feel like just one step closer to being enlightened about the way things work, which I don't think I'll ever get there, but it's, it's right. nice to take a few steps down that path. Yeah, I'll say um, the more you look at the, the world, the universe, kind of through this lens, um, the more – I mean, for better or worse, the more it takes some of the mystery away or some of the, the majesty of, like, all these amazing things because you kind of strip away, um, you know, some of the, the mystique around certain things when you just say, well, that's actually just, you know, a bunch of these things following these simple rules and this stuff happens. Um so you know it it could be a little depressing. I'm a uh, I am a determinist uh, as far as the way I believe the universe works, and I mean this requires determinism to kind of to explain complex systems this way. Can which you can define be sort determinism? Of a, uh, that just basically means that the entire universe is basically a clockwork system following a basic set of rules, which we you know you could call physics. Um, everything is cause and effect. There's nothing mystical. There's nothing magical. It's just uh, there was the Big Bang or whatever the start was, and a uh, process started, and everything that happened was inevitable, and it's just the the process uh, basically going through its, uh, well, process. And it's that can be a very uh, depressing way to look at the world. It basically gets rid of the, the, the concept of free will and uh, uh, anything like that, but... Uh, my understanding of physics has led me down that path, and yet I can still go out and have fun and uh, enjoy life, even though I feel like I'm on a path that was set already, and uh, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm along for the ride. Oh, that's interesting. So you feel like even when you get down to the personal level, your path is determined regardless of choices you make or ideas you have, or do you feel like even things like the ideas – that pop into your mind about, Oh, I'm gonna go river surfing, whatever, like those ideas are set in motion eons ago, but just by the way that atoms have interacted up to the point where they formulate it into your brain meets. That is exactly right. Uh, it's a tough, wow. tough pill to swallow, but, uh, uh, at a hobbyist level also, I try to keep up with physics and I just don't see any other way that it could be. See, I've always, I don't know. Do you think, do you fall into the camp of thinking that things happen for a reason? Like um, that, that old platitude that people say? No. I mean, it depends on what the definition of reason you, you're using are uh, using is it's uh, to me, 
if you want to use the reason word, the reason would be uh, the rules of the universe, the physics involved. Uh, nothing uh, higher than that. Nothing, uh, you know, spiritual, I guess, would be one way to look at it. I think it's just, like I said, clockwork universe. I was lucky to be um, this little whirlpool of atoms that emerged and it's spinning around for a little while. And um, I'm on a ride and I have to be complex enough to be self-aware of this. And uh, for better or for worse, I can see that. And it's uh, and now we've gone down a very interesting path. But yeah, that's uh, <laughs> not where I was planning on going today. But that's yeah, that's that's something I've thought about a lot. And um, it doesn't really bother me. Um, and I don't think it's changed how I live or anything. I don't I don't think it, like everything I do. I'm not like, well, I was going to do that anyway. Or like every decision I make, I don't think of it that way. Uh, every now and then you kind of can reflect on it and be like, well, that's just how it was going to be. And that's, you know, whatever. Um, so sometimes it can be useful to think that way, but yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I've always been morally opposed to the idea of thinking that things happen for a reason, because I feel like when people, people usually say that as a way to either like absolve themselves of something or like pat themselves on the back. I, I feel and uh, mm-hmm. what I think like with the way that a, a typical human would think about a reason, it's usually, uh, you know, people that are kind of, I don't know, maybe have like a downtrodden look on the world will kind of find, find bad reasons for things and people that are a little yeah. bit more upbeat find good reasons. I think that as far as on a, a human level, the reasons are kind of determined by the end user but I do like the idea of you saying things happen for a reason and the reason is physics. Cause I think, I think that that is almost certainly true, but it's just hard to wrap my mind around as a human, the idea of there not being choice, but you know, it makes a lot of sense now why uh, you recommended devs so many times to us, because <laughs> this conversation is uh, basically devs, the off top. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good point. I actually have the, that queued up to watch again because that one, that one, I mean, obviously, like you're seeing, that one struck home for me for sure. Yeah, if you guys have not watched Devs, we haven't covered it fully on this show, but we have talked about it a little bit. But it's a it's a Hulu original, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it may be the only Hulu original that I found to be no. Um, I, I was gonna say the only one I found to be completely awesome, but I think I recommended Future Man. I don't know if you guys have checked that out, but. For all the listeners out there, that is a wild, wild, uh, hilarious, ridiculous show in itself. And I believe that was Hulu as well. I think you did recommend that, and that slipped through the cracks, but I'm going to write that down right now. Well, well man, Complex Systems, that is intense, buddy. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I did it justice. I don't know if you can do it justice in that amount of time, but... Uh, I gave it a shot, and now that we've started talking about the main topic of this podcast content, do you have some content that you would like to talk about today? Oh, for the uh, content circuit, you mean? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's all right. Yes. That's what I meant. <laughs> all right, hey guys, it's only my third third try at this. Uh, so I'm still working my way through Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that. Uh, that's that charity content I was talking about. Doesn't really do me any good for the show. But I did just download yesterday, it just released uh, a game that I didn't even realize I've been waiting for for years. But it's uh, Metroid Dread. It's the first 
2D Metroid game released by Nintendo, and I think since 2002, which has been a long time. And uh, wow. the the very first game I ever talked about on this show was Hollow Knight, which is a Metroidvania. That's a just a you know that's a subgenre of games that is kind of like exploration, backtracking. You like find these powers. And uh, that's a that's a game type I've always loved. So I'm pretty excited for a new Metroid game because that's a that's a rare once every couple of decades treat apparently. So that's about it for me right now. What about you? Um, I thought you might mention this one because um, it's right up your alley. It's super hot right now. Uh, it's like apparently the biggest show in the world and Netflix ever around the world. Uh, Squid Game. Have oh you- yeah, it's uh. That is on my list. Have you watched it? Because I Man. have a feeling it's going to be one of my favorite things ever when I watch it. Yeah, I can't imagine anything that sounds more Josh to me. Um, <laughs> and it's a strong statement. I don't want to be wrong, but I, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to be really into it. I don't. Uh, yeah, so I finished it. It's. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because I, I want to wait till you see it, um, or in, even if that's when you. Brett get to talk about it. It is something. I mean, it's, it's, how do you, I, I don't want to describe too much about it, but it, it's, it's, it's very disturbing in a lot of ways. Um, and the only thing I kind of want to mention about that is it, uh, it's, a, it's a movie that's for, I would have thought this were a certain type of people like you and me. And, um, you know, a lot of people like us Sick um, that we can watch. Yeah. Yeah. But can enjoy it. And, you know, uh, you know, see it for what it is. The fact that it's the biggest, I, I don't, I think I've heard this multiple times. So I don't think I'm quoting this wrong. The biggest show Netflix has ever had in like 90 of its markets or something blows my mind that this has become so mainstream and that so much of the world is just gobbling this up uh, because of the type of content it is. Um, and to me, that almost says something about the world that's uh, in a way a little disturbing, but uh Maybe, maybe not. Um, maybe we're all a little sick uh, in our own way, and uh, this has just finally kind of been mainstream enough for us to to all join together in our sickness. But man, it's uh, I, I will say it's, it's a great show. I mean, it's really well done. Um, some really messed up shit, but uh, yeah, it's uh, as I like to say, it's something. <laughs> it's something. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, from what I've seen with the trailers, it is. Apparently, like they take like children's games and make them lethal. Like a, it's kind of like like a Hunger Games vibe where people are the contestants on a game show and they all die. And it's South Korean. It's in subtitles. Yeah. Man, that is a Josh combo right there. You are yeah, I, not wrong about that, buddy. Yeah, I thought it might be. So I, I look forward to uh, when you finally get a chance to check that out here and hearing your thoughts on it. I can tell from the trailer. I've I've already been kind of planning that. Oh, this is definitely something I'm going to have to bring to the show at some point because the trailer is right up my alley. So mm-hmm. once I finish Walking Dead again, then uh, mm-hmm. Squid Game is next up, and you'll almost certainly hear about it here. Oh, I'm certain. Oh, speaking of Walking Dead, uh, I know this is the final season. Is it over yet? I haven't watched this season. The last season. No, they're like seven episodes in eight episodes in and then it's going to be an extended 24 episode season so it's like a a season and a half basically so they're they're giving themselves the time to round out the entire story i guess that they wanted to tell even though 
the original plan, I think, was to go to season 12, and they cut that off and made season 11 just extended. Okay, so the, uh, yeah, I wasn't even sure if they were planning on kind of wrapping soon, or if this was like some kind of network thing, or probably both. I think they were, they were, yeah, they're planning on wrapping up at some point, but uh, while I've been watching Walking Dead, I've also been listening to the Watching Dead podcast where they, these two guys just talk about everything Walking Dead and uh, they make it sound like AMC has a ton of back office problems where it's just like Hmm. decisions on the show that happen that kind of like pissed off the viewers a lot of it was determined by like contract disputes and all this stuff that's like the most boring thing known to man and the last yeah. thing you want getting in the way of your content. And apparently a bunch of like executive infighting and budget cuts and contract stuff kind of contributed to that little slog in the middle, like season seven, season eight, where the show was admittedly horrible. That's where I that's where yeah. I am in my watch through right now. <laughs> but um it definitely it is back on track right now. They have a new showrunner, and it seems like they're giving them a big budget right now because they have got these massive sets that they seem like you're just looking at a place like in a city that they walled off and like rented it for six months to shoot. But in reality, these sets are things I've learned this recently, like the prison set on The Walking Dead, and then Alexandria, which is where you know the heroes have lived. It's like a walled community. These are things that they just built from the ground up. Like Alexandria, they built it as a functional residential neighborhood. It just has zombie walls around it. And they're like, hey, this is where people that work on this show live. They can buy houses here. But this is also the set to the show. So when you're watching the show and you see like outside the walls of Alexandria, what you're looking out is into just all the neighborhoods around where they shoot. So it's really interesting knowing that, watching the show going back now like oh i can see exactly where the end of this set is and i can see in the background where it's like they probably had to work around mail trucks driving or they just like you know they just rotoscope them out or something it's it's really cool wow. learning more and more stuff about the show and then going back and enjoying it now where i'm not necessarily like tied so much to the decisions of the characters because i've already seen it you know now i can just kind of enjoy the the behind the scenes and the functionality of how they made it. Yeah, that's, that's really neat. Um, I know we're getting a little long in our beginning here, but there was one thing, uh, one interaction I had with a cast member from walking dead. So, uh, I used to live in Atlanta. That's where they film uh, walking dead. And there was a bar in a little neighborhood that we used to go to a lot. Um, that, uh, a lot of the members of walking Dead would go to from time to time. And it was Halloween. And I had a costume where I, got like a little zombie baby and like I made it like <laughs> oh, I was yes. pulling a piece out of my neck and uh, I just had it like bleeding on this like white uh, sports coat I bought and went to this bar after like some Halloween party and oh, what was her name? Uh, it was one of the first season. Uh, was there an Andrea? Uh, Andrea. Ugh. Yeah. 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 So she was there and she bummed us. I bummed a smoke from her. Or she bummed a smoke from me. And we we're just sitting there chatting. And I realized who it was, and I was like, oh, this is fucking awesome and stuff. But I had left my freaking zombie jacket costume oh, in the no. car. And I didn't even <laughs> think to go get it and get this, like, photo with her. I mean, this zombie costume. That would have been together. so good. Yeah, that that's was, pretty that, cool. Uh, I think I have two regrets in my life, and that's, like, one. <laughs> well, are you going <laughs> to save the other one for later? Are you going to make us wonder? Yeah, yeah. We'll save that for another pod. Fair enough. 
Well, uh, I'm sure Andrea, the actress, is a lovely lady in real life, but I got to admit, I was looking forward to her dying for several seasons because <laughs> she is so, so infuriating. But that's awesome, man. Yeah, I bet it's pretty cool being around Atlanta if you're a Walking Dead fan. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw um, – oh what's the guy's name plays Glenn? Uh, Steve uh, – Steven Ewan? Yep. I saw him there one time too. Cool. Oh, man, you got all kind of good uh, – entertainment industry stories don't you oh man let me tell you i'm i'm all up in that (laughs) (laughs) all right well let's take a quick break and then when we come back we'll get into the content content? what are some assumptions people make about you what do they assume about you because of your profession appearance hobbies or tastes and how many of those assumptions are actually wrong my name is dave kimball and i'm the host of the don't assume podcast a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Normally, you would say that and you'd ask me what content I'm going to do. But uh, today, I'm just going <laughs> to tell you. What do you think about that? I think it's a good idea, considering I messed up my last little transition. <laughs> hey, <laughs> nah, no problem at all. So seeing as how this is the month of Halloween, and last week you did horror material, or at least horror-adjacent material. I mean, Tremors yeah. isn't really scary, but it is predicated on horror concepts. I figured that I would keep the ball rolling with the horror theme this week. And I did mm-hmm. want to give you an update that apparently I have seen Tremors 2, because I've seen those Graboids with legs before. and I, I remember seeing that in a movie. So I think I've seen Trimmers 1 and 2. But are you a horror fan? Like, I want to I ask you that, like, I know you like Squid Game, so it sounds like maybe you like that kind of twisted shit. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say I'm a huge horror fan. Um, I've watched a good bit of it, but I've never been super into it. Uh, I know when I was younger, I scared really easily, and that may have turned me off a little bit. Um Things like Squid Game, they're more psychological and, well, sometimes it's really screwed up. I can do better with than the straight up, like, uh, fear based horror. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan, but I've, I've watched a decent bit. Nice. Well, the uh, this is a Netflix series, it's on Netflix. And uh, the uh, TVMA warning that they usually post up, you know, they tell you all the things that are mm-hmm. you got to watch out for. Obviously, for me, I'm like, oh, these are all the cool things in this show. But the uh, list associated with the warning is violence, sex, nudity, language, gore, and smoking. And I was like, man, never before have I seen such a raging endorsement for something I'm going to put into my brain meats to steal a term from you. Those are all you know things that I like to see in my shows. Uh, you had me there until they, they listed smoking. That's probably where I would draw the line. I always find it funny that they put smoking in there with like – violence and sex and gore it's like smoking is just so 
I don't know. It's like so unobtrusive in the world now. When I see like mm-hmm. someone smoking an actual cigarette, I'm just like, what is going on here? Because <laughs> vaping is just like kind of taken over now. You know, that, that's it's like the vaping is like the walking of 2021, i.e., the one wheel <laughs> for smoking. <laughs> right. But uh, what I'm going to talk about today is American Horror Story, specifically the 1984 season. If you watched American mm. Horror Story. I watched the first season. I don't remember a ton about it because, like I said, my brain meets don't do well with memories. But um, I, I know I enjoyed it. I never, I never checked out any of the follow-ups though. Oh man, it's so good. So, American Horror Story is an American, if you believe that, anthology horror television series created by Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk for uh, the cable network FX. And each season is a self-contained miniseries following a different set of characters. So it's a full reset every season and uh, as we'll come to see quite a few of the events in the show are inspired by real events and this is i learned this during my research that american horror story is from the creators of glee of all things which is a show that i can unequivocally say i would never watch so i guess that just kind of speaks to the diversity of talent and the type of things that uh producers can create that's impressive and American Horror Story, it's the first in the American Story Media franchise, which also features the American Crime series. And that's its true life stories, things like People vs. OJ, the assassination of Versace, the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Those are all storylines that they've covered on American Story, the American Story series. But that's not really what we're here to talk about. I just thought it was interesting that American Horror Story is the first in, I guess everybody's got to have a cinematic universe these days. Right. But uh, the interesting thing about the format is like what, you know, what I just said about how it's a mini series. It resets every, every uh, season. And it it seems like it's kind of like a, like a, an acting troupe. You know, it's like the feeling I get is like these same actors going around, like putting on shows in different cities. And uh, there are some familiar faces in there. Uh, Evan Peters, Sarah Paulson, Lily Rabe. Those are like some of the most frequent actri- actors and actresses on the show. But they've also had some really big names like Jessica Lange, Angela Bassett, John Carroll Lynch, and uh, Emma Roberts, L- Kathy Bates, Lady Gaga. So they'll pull in like these big names. And then sometimes uh, those people will become regulars on the show. So it's interesting to see like Lady Gaga come in and it seems kind of like stunt casting, but then she ends up being on following follow-up seasons. And each season has its own theme. So uh, the one you've seen, the first season is Murder House. And then there's uh, Asylum, Coven, Freak Show, Hotel, Roanoke, Cult, Apocalypse, 1984, and Double Feature. And I've seen most of those seasons. Wait, uh, and many, I could... What's that? How, how many was that? That was way more uh, than I thought there were. It's 10 seasons right now. Oh, wow. And I, I believe that uh, nine of the seasons are on Netflix right now. And I could discuss like almost any of them. There's a few mediocre examples, uh, but most of them are kind of a sample of greatness. But I'm going to focus down on 1984 in specific. So season nine, 1984, in the beginning, is a straight-up slasher with all of the tropes that that entails. But this show is very self-aware and it wields these tropes with razor-sharp focus and accuracy. And then halfway through, the story takes a very American horror story turn and changes into something completely different. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that from the uh, Murder House season, mm-hmm. which it seemed like every three or four episodes it would change into like a completely different story. 
and um, the there's you know the inclusion of several different horror themes. It doesn't feel unearned or tacked on in this show to me. Uh, it makes it's in most of the seasons it makes makes logical sense in the world they created for the story uh, for it to be kind of cycling through all of these styles and genres, things that we are familiar with, anyone who's a fan of horror. And this season just happens to be a fantastic deconstruction of the slasher genre. So you're probably not like a slasher fan then. That's that's I would imagine that's like the least appealing type of horror to someone who isn't into like just the crazy fear side of horror. Yeah, uh yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. I mean, I know I've seen um, some things. When I was a kid, uh, I think the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, franchise kind of screwed me up a little bit. I, I watched some of the Jasons, I want to say. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Actually, some of the Chainsaw Massacres I actually liked. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't seek it out. I guess that would be the way to, good way to put it. Well, what's, what's interesting about this is uh, it is like a straight up deconstruction of the slasher genre. And I was looking into deconstruction and that's, it's basically like uh, when a genre is boiled down to a set of tropes or conventions Mm -hmm. and a typical premise, like all of the, all of these things are, uh, they're features and then they're played straight in a deconstructed film. You know, it's kind of like scream where they break down mm. all of the basics that go into making these movies and they don't shy away from any of, you know, the, uh, any of the cheesiness or the unpleasant consequences or the causes of these things that, that have become staples in a genre. And right. basically the heart of a genre is just laid bare and it's, it's not done to point out how unpleasant a genre or a trope is, but, uh, to break away from the cliches and stock themes that a genre or a trope, uh, a trope has acquired and Mm -hmm. deconstructing a genre will typically change it forever. Like what happened with scream. And after, you know, there's like in horror, there is a clear delineation before scream and after scream. And after scream happened, almost everything started becoming self-aware and started, putting in little details that, you know, that felt like clever nods to other movies. But I feel like a lot of the movies that came after Scream also kind of missed the point. Like Scream was making a statement about horror movies in general, about all the things that you expect to see when you go to see a horror movie. And then it like played around with all those conventions and a lot of other movies that came after it, they were just kind of self-aware just as a, because they felt like that's what you needed to be now that Scream had happened. But uh, nobody really did it better than Scream in the horror genre. Until this show, if you're looking for a breakdown specifically of the 80s slasher, this is just like such a perfect example of it. And you have all of the, you have all the basic characters that you expect to find in, a, in an 80s slasher. You have like the preppy guy, the jock, the slutty girl, the innocent girl, the token minority character. And the setup is also classic eighties. It's a summer camp with a dark history. It reopened 14 years after a horrific murder spree that spawned an iconic slasher, Mr. Jingles. And he's kind of a combo of Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, and whoever that guy from, I know what you did last summer is. I don't know if that guy (laughs) has a name. 
And uh, I always I always love the idea of the 80s slasher, but for the most part, I've been disappointed with them. I mentioned that recently on the show that like I really like the idea of Jason, but I always found the movies to just kind of be super lame and suck. But this show leans into the cheesiness and makes it part of the motif. There's a definitive awareness that feels like it's one step removed from Scream, like the writers clearly know they are producing 80 schlock, but the characters have no idea that these tropes exist. And that's kind of a difference from Scream. Everybody seems, you know, every, all the Jamie Kennedys in the bunch in Scream seem to know that all this stuff is from a movie, and that's not a theme they play with here. Yeah, uh, I'll just throw this out real quick. Another, I think, great example of what you're describing is uh, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. That's probably uh, that's probably one of the other milestones when it comes to uh, splitting horror off into even smaller subgenres. Like Scream did it, and then Cabin in the Woods mm-hmm. did it. Yeah, that was a great movie. Oh, it's so good. I had considered uh, covering it on here at one point, but it never happened. Uh, so here are some tropes from this from this uh, season of, of American Horror Story. There's the diverse group of friends. I call them the uh, McDonald's ad of friends <laughs> where you have all the different uh, economic backgrounds, all the different races, everyone from the nerd all the way up to the cheerleader. Everybody's hanging out together. Completely unrealistic group of friends, just like a McDonald's mm-hmm. ad. But that is a trope <laughs> in these films. Uh, there's the crazy girl no one believes, the cursed camp, there's dead counselors, the hitchhiker, the know-it-all, the harbinger of doom at the gas station, things like arbitrarily, arbitrarily having the lights go out, losing your keys, splitting up for no reason, the virgin girl, falling down for no reason, needless exposition, the survivor from a previous slaughter, the unkillable killer, and of course the killer returning from the dead. And that is all just in the first half of the season. Wow. And since... This is a long story format. They can really give the characters time to grow. Like they seem like they would just be like cheesy caricatures, but they really they really put a lot into developing the characters in American Horror Story. And most of the named characters get nice fleshed out backstories, even if they are some of the first people to die. And then there are double crosses, character arcs that flip one eighty, then five forty, and. Uh, <laughs> Unlike some other long-form horror series like The Walking Dead, uh, the long format doesn't feel like it's padded out with unneeded filler episodes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you're watching a slasher, what you're really signing up for is the kills. And I know when a movie starts, I always see the initial group, and I feel like I can get a pretty good handle on uh, kind of the order they're going to die in, who the fi- what the final kill count's going to be. But this show surprised me multiple times by introducing characters later in the game that seemed like they're going to be important only to kill them off minutes later. And it, It's interesting because it really kept me on my toes as a seasoned uh-huh. horror viewer, and plus it expands that ever-important kill count that you know you're looking for if you're into this kind of thing. So the... Uh, one of the most interesting things about American Horror Story is that they weave like real life horror and murder and ghost stories and things into their show. And uh, I mean, they draw from a number of references, you know, things like like ghost stories, campfire tales, pop culture, and uh, the least of which is not the real life horror that America is almost founded on dating back to 
things like the slaughter of the indigenous people and slavery mm-hmm. and the numerous serial killers that our country seemed to breed during the seventies. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's what makes it so interesting because it truly is American in its horror. Like it touches on all of these things and it's a, a very interesting narrative choice that American horror story consistently weaves these things into the story. It makes it feel like makes it feel like it could be a part of fiction and it kind of shines a light on how ridiculous some of the things that have happened in this country have been like things Mm -hmm. that when you see them on screen, you almost, you almost don't even want to believe it's real except that, you know, you've heard of Jeffrey Dahmer or, you know, John Wayne Gacy. Like, you know that these people really create just committed these horrendous acts. But I found a, uh, I found a list of a lot of really cool, uh, real crime references that the show has touched on. Um, Things like the Cecil Hotel, which is the hotel in uh, in L.A. that's supposedly like one of the most haunted locations on Earth, and apparently a lot of serial killers have actually used the Cecil Hotel as like a home base. Apparently, it's on like Skid Row and in a real bad part of town. Um, did have you ever heard of the story of? Uh, I think her name is Lisa Lamb or something. She was like a, a lady that was found dead in a water tower on top of the Cecil hotel. Did you ever hear that story? No, I don't, I don't think so. So there's like video of her, like freaking out in the elevator of the Cecil. And she's like, it looks like she's talking and fighting with someone, but there's no one else in the elevator. And then, uh, the doors close and, you know, she kind of goes about her business. And that was like the last time anyone ever saw her alive. And then they found her floating in the water tank on, on top of the hotel. Super How- freaky. How long ago is is this place still around or in business? Yeah, I think it's I think it's still there. Yeah, but that was kind of the Cecil Hotel is kind of the basis of their uh, of their hotel series. And then there's things like H. H. Holmes, who again was uh, he's the uh, in uh, Chicago at the World's Fair, like back in the 20s or something. He had like a murder hotel set up where he would bring people in like weary travelers and he would trap them in these crazy like airtight rooms and stuff where they would suffocate to death or he'd pump in noxious gas. Just real crazy stuff that I that, can't believe has actually a, happened. That's a real story. Yeah, it's real. Man, it sounds like something that I saw or like Dexter. I know it's insane. But then the, this show weaves in like the Black Dahlia murder, uh, Joseph Mengele, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Gein, the Columbine shootings, Eileen Warnos. And then in the 1984 season, they used uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, as a main character. Mm. And I was thinking about this, like, when I looked at this list of all these crazy things they referenced, I was like, what, what do you think it is about the American experience that seems to breed this type of mind? And not to say that, like, other countries can't create perfectly serviceable murderers. I don't want to take anything away from anyone. <laughs> but you have to admit that America is almost iconic in the caliber of killers that is let loose on the world. And so many of them being included is certainly a commentary on the real life American horror that we've all become accustomed to. So like, why do you think there've been so many killers in American history? God, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, it has to somehow, I mean, the culture has to play into it at some level. Um, and we have a pretty open culture. Well, we have a mixed culture, like parts of the country are open. Parts are pretty closed. Uh, I mean, 
we generally do well in a lot of categories as far as first world kind of measurements, but I don't know. Maybe it's something about the freedom or, uh, you know, like maybe tighter cultures, like a lot of the Asian cultures and things like that kind of that tightness guards against um, these kind of things. Like, you know, maybe the people are there, but they don't, they don't have the freedom or uh, just feel like they can, go full out i don't know that's uh that's very interesting but it's uh i guess in a way pretty telling about you know we're, we're so great in, in a lot of ways that this country but in some ways yeah we have some pretty messed up junk yeah i don't know what do you think <laughs> well i mean i i was kind of thinking along the same lines like maybe it has something to do maybe not so much with the freedom but more like the types of stresses that are associated with first world living you know, it's mm-hmm. like in this country, there is, there's a lot of focus, I think, on things that people who are just concerned with survival would think is completely trivial. You know, like yeah. all of the, I don't know, like the whole, pretty much anything associated with the wokeness movement, you're like, that is all luxury anger, you know? Yeah. And I feel like yeah. there is a lot of luxury anger in America. But I was looking into this because I mean I'm not a I'm not a sociologist by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I, I saw one theory that we don't actually have more high-profile killers than anywhere else. It's just that we have more coverage and they're more easily caught, so the awareness is higher. But there there is or there was an undeniable golden age of serial killers, which uh, the golden age was. It's classified as between being between 1970 and 1999 with over over 80% of this country's famous killers operating within that time span. And I found this Rolling Stone article that posits uh, that one of the striking links between many of these killers is that they were all born during wartime with uh, veteran parents that may have been suffering from PTSD and that may have contributed to abusive homes. So this uh, like this Rolling Stone article is based on uh, the work of criminal psychologist Peter Vronsky. And he said that most serial killers' predilections are determined by the age of 14, and they begin killing in their mid-20s. And this exposure to violence and abuse at a young age, like if you're growing up in an abusive home, was a huge contributing factor to there being so many killers during the Golden Age. Like During the 70s and 80s, hitchhiking killings and home invasions were very common. But into the 90s, America saw a decline in hitchhiking, likely due to the danger of it, and the rise of things like home security systems in response to some of these high-profile murderers. So when that happened, serial killers kind of turned to targeting sex workers as a vulnerable pool of victims. And then sex workers eventually started getting savvier as well. So many serial killers started preying for victims online in the late 90s and early 2000s. And luckily, it seems that you know, the so-called golden age of serial killers has ended because quite frankly, it's much harder to get away with extended killing sprees these days due to technology. Mm-hmm. So this golden era was, it's almost taken on like a mythical quality in, in the horrific stories it's created. And that is, I got to tell you, prime material for a show like American Horror Story to mine. I would imagine so. I don't think you could have an American Horror Story franchise without uh, uh, this golden age. Yeah, and it it's interesting too that they use that, you know, they use that and things like 
school shootings, things that you would think of as like distinctly American as narrative devices. I think that's kind of a bold move because I'm sure there are a lot of occurrences like that, that people would rather shy away from. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really interesting seeing those things woven in because I mean, it is American horror story. And when you see things like Jeffrey Dahmer or, John Wayne Gacy or a school shooting. I mean, like that just totally is like, ding, this is American as all get out. And I think it's, it's good from a branding perspective and it's just really interesting storytelling that, you know, the creators would, I think that's a bold move to take when you're, when you're telling a story. Yeah. Um, I would imagine, uh, a lot of people would shy away from trying to do something like that. Um, but I don't know. I, I say it's, it's, it's a part of our reality. Um, it needs to be acknowledged, you know, in whatever way it's best to acknowledge it. How do you feel that something like that fits into a complex system? Do you feel that the rise of some sort of iconic serial killer is also determined by interaction of atoms at the basis <laughs> level, like back, back to the big bang? Uh, I mean, if, if, if you're to believe in, you know, um, strict determinism, like I do, then yeah, you have to, uh, everything, Again, it's not everything that happens for a reason. Everything's just following the, the clockwork uh, running of the universe, and this shitty stuff happens to be part of it. Um, but so does all the really good stuff. Uh, Man. And, uh, there's nothing you can uh, – no, you, you can't really go any deeper than that. It's just uh, – there's there's sort of a uh, – like in a lot of these systems, there's sort of the – not the equilibrium, but like – the 90%, 95%, the way things always happen, but there's always outliers on both ends of the spectrum uh, on the curve. And uh, the shitty stuff's on the outlier side and uh, the good stuff's on the you know the other side. And it's just uh, just the way the, the world ticks. Well, do you feel like those outliers could... Like, have you ever done an experiment in your life to see if you could jump yourself off your path? Do you think that like an outlier who is... If you could roll the time roll the time back from you know you, you find a Jeffrey Dahmer in the world if certain conditions had not been met during their life do you feel like they would have still been on the same path like based on determinism um no so the i mean the, the conditions are a requirement um if the conditions were different different it would have been a, a different path but uh in determinism, I mean, those conditions were bound to happen. Um, like there was no, no way to deviate from that path. But yeah, I, I, I don't think that person was born to be, you know, whatever they ended up being um, in any kind of like higher mystical sort of way. It's just uh, the, all the atoms in the universe conspired against them into giving them shitty abusive parents or, uh, you know, the, the, la the thing that broke the last straw and it could be uh, one simple little thing that, uh, you know, it could have been a, a meteor coming from another solar system that like the butterfly effect, uh, you know, it could be, this is one little thing that was the, the thing that, that turned their path into what it was. And that, unfortunately for them and anybody involved and in, uh, that's just the way it was going to be. I don't know if that is more disturbing or less disturbing <laughs> than just imagining the way I've always viewed the world that people had choices. So that is, man, that is a really crazy way to think about it. Yeah. I don't, um, 
again, I don't think I planned, or well, I'm certain I didn't plan on coming to the podcast and uh, to talk about uh, uh, the uh, the challenges and, and interesting aspects of determinism and, and kind of believing in it. But, uh, you know, we can, Sam Harris does it, so why can't we? can't bring something like that up and then not expect me to view uh, <laughs> all of America's serial killers through that lens. No, that's true. It's, it's actually a, uh, a good way to kind of, yeah, kind of take a step back and, and think about it. It's really interesting. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about everything that way from now on. Ugh, it's like a little Ooh. brain worm once it gets in there. It uh, really is. You can't get rid of it and get it out. Take solace in this, though. You had no, uh, I mean, <laughs> that was this was going to happen to you no matter what. Wow. I feel so much better now. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to American Horror Story. So I kind of yeah. use my wife as a barometer on how on horror, like if it's a if it's straight up scary or if it offers something more. So Walking Dead is a perfect example of a quote unquote scary show that has more to offer than just the horror. In fact, mm-hmm. I'd say it's pro- probably more of a dramatic show with horror elements than anything else. And almost uh, a soap opera. Yeah, a little bit. And I kind of say the same thing about American Horror Story. Now, a show with the word horror in the title, it's bound to be a little bit more intense than The Walking Dead. But regardless, this show has way more to offer than just like tension building and jump scares. And occasionally the seasons try to cram in a little bit too much. But for the most part, they are all well-crafted narratives with good character development and real drama. And these stories would work without the horror elements. But the scary and gory stuff is highlighted for people who like that sort of thing, like me. I love that sort of thing. I got some bad pheromone (laughs) trails apparently that brought me to this point. So it's always for me a rare treat when there is horror themed content content that I can share with my wife. And I commend American horror story for walking that difficult line of appealing to hardcore horror hounds like myself, as well as people with a slightly less calibrated horror barometer, like my wife, Melissa. And I asked her, I was curious about this. And I asked her why she's okay with things like this and The Walking Dead, but she doesn't like something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. And she said that things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre are just too realistic. They're too easy to project into, and they are designed specifically to create tension and anxiety. It's kind of like what you were saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, American Horror Story and The Walking Dead are a little bit more animated. They're more surreal, maybe even like a little cartoony in their scenarios. Yeah. And uh, they offer more than just, you know, a heart attack. And that fits <laughs> kind of perfectly into the point that I'm making here, that American Horror Story is over the top, and it mas- mashes up subgenres. It riffs on real American horror. And uh, this this show still feels distinct and original, and it walks this fine line between horrific, creative, dramatic, and approachable. And... Uh, you know, my guess is that everyone has probably had a little bit of exposure to the show at some point, but if you're looking for something with a ton of bingeable content and a wide span of themes and storylines that celebrates the depraved and brutal side of American culture, American Horror Story might be right up your alley. Uh, I got to say, you've done it again. Uh, a lot of the content, uh, a very large amount of the content that you recommend and cover, I have to go check out and... Even though this is not really, uh, you know, an area I'd dive into, um, you know, that the eighties horror movies style was kind of what I grew up on as a kid. And uh, I don't know this, uh, I think I'll have to check this episode or this season out because, uh, 
the way you described it, it sounds like a lot of the stuff I did enjoy, or at least tried to enjoy. So yeah, I think I'll check it out. Sweet. That's uh, that's what I want to hear, man. That's great. <laughs> well, maybe we'll uh, check back in if you uh, if you watch a little bit of it and let me know what you think. Yeah, absolutely. I gotta. Now that we uh, we're settled a little more settled in our lives, I'm actually able to start putting some content back into the circuit. And uh, yeah, let's try to squeeze this one here. I can tell you right now, Heather will not be participating in American Horror Story 1984. Um, I uh, don't think uh, she could even handle Walking Dead. So uh, this will be a solo mission. That one's not (laughs) even scary remotely at this point. Right. Um, Well, thanks for uh, bringing that intriguing off top and uh, introducing a little bit of determinism into my life. That is definitely something I'm going to be thinking about at all times now. So thanks for that. Also, uh, thank you listeners for checking out the show. We truly appreciate it. If you do like the show, please share it with your friends. That is the best way for us to grow the listenership on this show. Also, you can check out our Instagram and Facebook accounts at The Content Clearinghouse. We post a lot of fun, interesting things up there. You can email us if you have any uh, anything you want to tell us, any recommendations. You can email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Also, we have a Discord channel. You can check the show notes for the link. And thanks again, everyone. Come back next week for more awesome content jammed directly into your ear holes and then into your brain meats. Josh, wait. There's one more thing. You just mentioned it, but I want everybody right now to go get your phone and follow Content Clearing House on Instagram. Brett writes some amazing stuff on there, and I'm not seeing enough likes. Let's get that happening. That is a true recommendation right there. Definitely do that.